Welcome to Launched. I'm Charlie Chapman, and today I'm excited to bring you the creator of the skiing and snowboarding app Slopes, Curtis Herbert. Curtis, I guess I should start this show by asking you, are you wearing pants? Uh, today I am, but that's <laughs> only because I just got back from the vet. And if you want to go in public, at least in Philadelphia, I don't know how it is where you live, uh, but pants are required. Um, so, you know, real world interactions kind of got to put the pants on. Yeah. Here in the Midwest, it depends on where you're shopping. You know, if I go <laughs> to the, the fancy uh, local grocery store, yes, pants. Walmart, pants are optional. Oh, very nice. I, yeah, I yeah. need to move out there. <laughs> what are your mountains like? Follow-up question. <laughs> uh, well, we we do have one of those fake uh, mountains where, because, you know, we have like Ozark Hills, if you've ever heard of that as a thing. Uh, so we do have some big hills. And then we, if it's cold enough, we can spray the fake snow on there. And so we do have a little skiing uh, resort isn't really the right word, but a uh, place. <laughs> <laughs> a skiing park <laughs> yes yeah uh, honestly that's the best name for it okay <laughs> so that's a no R right, i might yeah. stay out here i'll live <laughs> with the pants yeah it's a little bit of a drive in every direction for the closest real mountain yeah, okay <laughs> uh so here on this show i like to kick things off with a little uh, icebreaker question from the audience and so today daryl asks do you prefer face id or touch id Ooh. Uh, definitely face ID, uh, except for the last month or so. Yeah. I'm missing touch ID just a bit there. Um, but, uh, I am biased as a skier, uh, snowboarder, um, that, uh, when we're outside, you want to keep those gloves on as much as you can. So touch ID was definitely annoying. Uh, face ID, yeah, your goggles can get in the way sometimes. Uh, but I've gotten it to work decently well uh, really? with an alternate face yeah uh i'll train a secondary face with it and it works most of the time so that's that's been more convenient than touch id was i guess it's similar to glasses yeah yeah it all depends on what lens i have in and how much ir it blocks <laughs> oh interesting okay that makes sense because it's using ir it's not using right so even if it's reflective as long as ir could get in right exactly okay. huh yeah i wouldn't have thought of that yeah. Yeah. So we just need uh, face masks that allow IR through, but not, uh, you know, viruses. Or, you know, 13.5, and then we'll be <laughs> <Yeah>. fine. <laughs> That's true. And then we're back to that. Or that under the glass touch ID that they're apparently working on that can't come soon enough. That will be a hot seller this September if they get that working and we still have to wear masks. Uh, that's an upgrade cycle I don't think Tim Cook could have planned on. Yeah. No kidding. Because, like, I know for my family, it's 50-50. Like, I really prefer Face ID, and Touch ID was, like, less consistent for me. But for my wife, it's the complete opposite. And it, even after however many years it's been, uh, she still is annoyed by Face ID. So I think the option to have both would definitely be the best. Yeah, I think that that is the ideal for me, too. Uh, you know, I'd say... I, I'm kind of weird. I feel like sometimes I'm an outlier. I'm like an Apple unicorn. Like most of their tech <laughs> works well for me. Like Siri works amazingly well for me. And I use it all the time for reminders and calendar and all kinds of Man, stuff. You're the one. Um, yes, I am the one that, uh, <laughs> that puts the customer satisfaction up through the roof for it. Um, so that works great. I feel like Face ID works great for me. So like I'm a bit biased there. Um, but there are definitely some occasions where it's just it would be nice not to have to, you know, look at my phone. But at the same time, let's not forget Touch ID with the whole wet right thumb trick, uh, training alternate fingers for when they're wet. Uh, I do not miss those days. 
wait a minute, what? Oh, that was a thing. You you never did that? So you could train it on your wet fingers? Yeah. Um, uh, I want to say I remember Casey Liss mentioning it first, but I don't know where it originated from, and I refuse to give him credit for that. Um, <laughs> it, it, But the idea was, you know, if you're in the kitchen or something and you're cooking or you're getting out of the shower, you know, your finger will be wet and that'll throw off Touch ID. Yeah, that was what always would get me. Yeah, and it was actually pretty successful if you got your finger wet and then trained it while it was wet. Um, ah. it, I, I can't say it was perfect, but it was certainly not the heavy failure rate that it would be without that training. Um, and yeah, I, so I would just train an alternate touch ID. Um, but fortunately you don't have to train a touch ID for like wet face or something like right. that. Well, although I know there's been lots of hacks for like, you make the mask cover half your face and do a scan and then make your yeah. mask cover the other half. And so I guess it's a similar sort of thing for that. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Well, uh, thank you, Daryl for that question. Uh, that was uh, interesting and fortuitous for these times. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into you, Curtis. So before we get into sl- uh, slopes, uh, I'd like to give everybody a primer on who you are. So the question I ask everybody is, where are you from? Uh, do you have a formal education related to what you do? And then what was your career like pre-slopes? Uh, so where I'm from is the Philadelphia area, now living in Philadelphia proper. Uh, do I have any formal education in this? Um, yes. Uh, it was called information systems technology. It was, uh, kind of think a product manager that could also code. Uh, so it was kind of a hybrid between business and CS more on the CS side of things. Uh, you know, I still had to normalize databases and do all that kind of fun stuff, but it definitely had some product management in it, uh, which came in very handy for running a product. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, what was the last one? The, ed- formal uh job job i guess was the question yeah uh yeah so out of college i was working for lockheed martin for six years um which was yeah i have that's that's some more stories there yeah, man. very uh, different yeah. than uh, indie life uh very different and <laughs> yeah th- uh, unless you got lucky on a research project you're usually using you know 10 year old technology right uh i was a j2ee developer back then Ooh. in the java world big system stuff um and i was excited when i got to use dot net because uh, that was <laughs> that was something fancy um which i mean at the time to be fair we, we were using their new mvc framework uh for a web application so it was actually kind of bleeding edge stuff um but that was like the most modern stuff i had ever used at the time at least internally for my job so yeah that was a place where your skills go to die if you stay there for too long i think um certain skills certain skills yeah it's you your c skills would stay sharp for the rest yeah. of your life and I imagine you got to flex your uh, project management skills lots of graphs and charts and oh yeah plenty of gantt charts yeah oh, lots God. of gantt charts <laughs> yeah that uh, but yeah so uh, i was there for about six years um actually left like two days after my six-year anniversary just so i could get uh the little extra credit for the pension um and then got out of there very nice and then so uh going from that you went uh you went freelance first right yeah, at the time. Uh, so that's when I was doing .NET MVC. And um, before I got into all this iPhone stuff, um, I was always a web guy. Uh, started in the late 90s on the web. And that was kind of where I really got into things with programming. So I left to do uh, web consulting at the time. Now, iOS had been out for a little bit. This was 2011. 
that I started consulting. Um, so it had been out and I had been playing with iOS and doing some stuff on it, but in charge of, in, in terms of being able to charge serious money, uh, I couldn't do that with iOS yet. Uh, I was still very much a web developer professionally. So, uh, that's kind of where I started when I left Lockheed was doing .NET stuff, basically. And then what got you into doing iOS development? Was Slopes your first app or did you kind of play around leading up to that? Oh, I had played around. Um, so I'd always wanted to be some kind of Apple developer. Uh, I love the Mac back in the 90s, got made fun of it for, uh, got made fun of for that plenty during high school by all the Windows users. Um, so I you o- earned your, uh, your Apple pride. I did. Yes. Back when they, uh, before Steve Jobs came back. Uh, yeah, those were dark eras. <laughs> Um, but so I always wanted to be, uh, some kind of developer on the Mac platform at that time. And so iOS was definitely kind of a nice reset. Um, I had tried to learn Mac programming a couple times before iOS came out and just, uh, I mean, objective C and bindings and like all these concepts that didn't really have a place in the web world. Uh, you know, the responder chain, for example, uh, you didn't really have that. And so I just kept struggling to learn that stuff. And I didn't really have the motivation at the time to push through because I didn't have an app idea. So iOS was kind of a nice time to get in when things were a little bit more level set, kind of like I feel a lot of people did with Swift. You know, it was a less intimidating time to get in because everybody is learning. Uh, there wasn't that sense of being behind you know, you're there learning with everybody else. Oh, that's interesting. That's what Swift UI kind of feels like right now. And totally. You, you do see like a big influx of people that sort of jump in and it's like, yeah, nobody's behind because we're all sort of fumbling in the dark. Yeah. And I think that's, that's great. Um, and that can make some aspects of the technology that is still hard to learn. Like, you know, I still had to learn Objective-C. Um, but the fact that the framework wasn't as heavy and there wasn't as much to learn there compared to today <laughs> with how yeah. big UI kit is and all the other frameworks that we have to deal with. Um, but then the part that I had to struggle to learn was a lot smaller in terms of catching up with everyone else. I had to learn objective C to catch up. I had to learn retain release, all that fun stuff, but I didn't have to learn. I felt like this massive, massive history of what was Mac OS at the time. Um, so yeah, I, I like that occasional reset. It gets fresh blood into the system. Yeah. But uh, so I guess back to your actual question. Uh, this this episode will be filled with tangents. It's going to be fun. <laughs> I don't know if you've listened, but uh, that's basically the show in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. Tangent.fm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that should have been but the name. It, no, I, I like launched. Um, but yeah. So uh, that iOS was kind of a, the launch of iOS was kind of the reset that I needed to finally get involved in programming for some kind of Apple system. Um, and I had started playing with that as soon as the SDK came out. Uh, I wasn't really hacking on it before the SDK, all those people kind of trailblazing then. Um, but as soon as the SDK was out, I started playing with it. And I think my first real, uh, quote unquote, real attempted at an app uh, did not age well from a name perspective. It was called Isis. Uh, oh man (laughs) yeah um i'm glad it didn't age well because it conflicted with the uh, credit card uh consortium right that's what you're talking about uh wait are you being serious oh well i'm being serious there was a credit card uh consortium called isis yeah oh that also did not age well and that came out like six months before you know the whole crisis uh, or not crisis but that whole thing became a big news story i did not know that was a thing too yeah interesting it was pretty bad I, i think it was like it was either credit cards i think it was yeah, I think it was a bunch of credit cards trying to make sort of a Apple Pay 
uh, competitor. Maybe it was a bunch of mobile providers. Oh, that was the one that got renamed into Currency? Uh, maybe. Honestly, I don't remember, but I'll look okay. it up and put it in the show notes. But yes, there was definitely something called ISIS that came <laughs> out relatively uh, around the same time as, you know, that terrorist organization uh, exploded into the news and... Yeah. Yeah. That was, it wasn't, wasn't great. <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't the only one who had that problem. Um, but it was Egyptian God uh, for, it was server monitoring. So the idea being that you could install a .NET component on a Linux box, and then this app would let you do remote monitoring of CPU, memory, all that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. Um, and I mean, I only probably put, I don't know, 80 hours into it, 100 hours into it. Um so it was, it was, you know, Curtis's first little app and it, it did its job. It just never really went anywhere. It only got, you know, probably a dozen sales total. Uh, but it was, it was definitely good to have a project that gave me a goal to work towards. Um, so I could learn the framework and learn everything involved. And take it all the way through to the store and have real customers, even if there wasn't very many of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, my mom emailing for customer support was great. Uh, that was an easy one to answer. Uh, she was probably one of the only sales. Um, but, Belligerent, but you know. Yeah. Um, she didn't know what to do with that app at all. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that was, I think, my first uh, quote unquote app that wasn't just a little hacky project. Um, but then it really just kind of sat on everything until slopes. Okay, so let's get in the slopes then. Um, I'll let you just give the quick pitch for what it is. So I usually say, uh, it's, you know, think Nike Plus, RunKeeper, Strava, all those GPS tracking apps. Uh, they're usually targeted towards runners or people on bikes. Uh, but slopes is that for skiers and snowboarders uh, because we have some very specific aspects to our niche. Uh, for example, you know, we take lifts up the hill and then we go downhill. And when we're looking at statistics, uh, we don't want that uphill travel to count towards, you know, our total distance or our average speed or anything like that. So we want that filtered out or at least separated versus a running app. Uh, you would have to hit pause every time you get on the lift before you would go up and then you'd have to hit start going down if you want to filter that kind of stuff. So there, it's a lot more, you know, specialized than that. Um, but that's kind of the reason that apps uh, very specific to this niche exist is because we do have a very specific set of requirements uh, for what kind of data we care about. Okay. And it runs on your phone. You can put it in your pocket and then you have a watch app as well, right? Yeah. Yep. Cool. So um, how did how did that actually get started as a product then? So I guess like most uh, developers... They use another app and they say, I can do a better job than this. Uh, <laughs> and then they commit to the next eight years of their life of doing a better job than that. Um, <laughs> turns out it's a lot of work when you say that. But <laughs> in this case, it paid off. Um, yeah, I was using another app. It was well engineered. Uh, my friends and I were using it on our phones back in like 2012. And it worked great. But the UI, it was definitely written by an engineer. And I was just like, you know what? I'm having to poke around too many screens to figure out like, hey, where was my top speed for the day? I want to know where that was on the mountain. Pretty simple question. I had to hop between like three or four screens and cross-reference. And it just wasn't laid out the way that skiers and snowboarders think, I think. Um, so that at that point, I was like, okay, I, I can do a better job than that. But it really, I, I sat on it for, geez, I don't know, eight months it's for some time I just sat on it. Cause I'm like, you know what? There's no way I just didn't have the confidence to move forward with it. It was something I'm like, you know, okay, I might, I might be able to make something here. Um, 
first doubting myself if I could do a good enough job to actually do better, but then also doubting like, is this worth the effort? Is there a market here? And so I sat on it for quite some time um, until there was a Philly startup weekend, which is like a 48 hour hackathon uh, where people can go and kind of present their ideas and then people can vote what they want to work on. Um, and then at the end of the weekend, they'll just kind of bring in some mentors and kind of like do a little judging of the products and stuff like that. And uh, I presented Slopes, a little 30 second spiel and boy, did I botch it. It bombed. Um, I mean, <laughs> I think I did okay, but I wasn't good at selling it. Um, so nobody voted for Slopes. Uh, so I was, you know, Friday night kind of dejected and stuff, but then I ended up with a group of people that none of us really felt good about the other products that were out there per se. Uh, at least we weren't drawn to the ones that people were working on. So we just kind of sat down and said, well, between all the products that we had pitched, uh, which one do we want to work on? And slopes ended up being the one that we wanted to work on. Um, so I'd come that weekend with a quick prototype of some of the GPS processing that needed to be proof of concept uh, to make sure I could do this. Um, and we spent the weekend just kind of, you know, looking into the market, doing some research, figuring out, you know, taking some of my design ideas and actually putting them on paper so we could show them. Um, and then it ended up winning the startup weekend. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, from no votes whatsoever uh, to, yeah, it won first prize, um, which was, I think, a large pack of Red Bull and uh some books <laughs> yeah. obviously made a big impact on you the red yeah. bull did <laughs> yeah um yeah i have a picture somewhere and we got a stupid like burger king crown basically um <laughs> but <laughs> but that was although nothing massive came out of that weekend um it isn't like suddenly i had a product or something like i think that just gave me kind of the confidence i needed that like oh look People who have some, you know, foot in the door in terms of building products and stuff like that uh, looked at this and said that they actually think there might be something here. You know, they were actually impressed with some of the takes I was trying to do on how I had approached design differently and some of the new things I wanted to do because I thought there were some interesting experiments to do here. And they actually you know, thought it was worthwhile. Um, so at that point, that was kind of the, I think, the confidence booster I needed to be like, okay, you know what, I'll... I'll give this a shot. I'll, I'll give this a real shot and see what happens. And so it seems like kind of the big differentiator then in those early days, the, the sort of idea, so to speak, is a different way to visualize the same data that most of the other apps were capturing. Yeah. At the time, there was probably two main apps at the time, one of which is still around today. Uh, they're my 99 cent competitor, the one that I had used beforehand. Um, and... The other one was a bit more social. I think even back then they had leaderboards and stuff like that. So they both did an okay job tracking. Um, the 99 cent one, uh, anyone who you know has seen me talk on Twitter about business models and stuff, you know my opinion of the sustainability of that. <laughs> um, the other one, uh, they had always struggled to monetize and I think they didn't quite do their paywall right. And so they were kind of the free app, uh, but they were struggling to stay in business. Uh, and they actually haven't updated their app now in three years. Uh, they pivoted to soccer, uh, oh, which is okay. actually really interesting. Um, and they're doing an amazing job there, but that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I need to look and, that up because I'm just curious what that even looks like. 
Uh, well, they used to be called Alpine Replay, um, and now they're called Trace. Um, okay. So if you want to look it up. Uh, so <laughs> the interesting quick story of them is, so they were doing iPhone tracking for skiing and snowboarding, uh, but then they were struggling to do any kind of monetization. It just wasn't really working out too well. Uh, I think they were giving way too much away for free is what it came down to. Mm. And so they decided, okay, well, let's get into the hardware business. You know, skiers and snowboarders, they pay for hardware. So let's give that a shot. So they started building uh, this little tracking puck that you could put on your skis or snowboard that would uh, that had better GPS in it and had accelerometer data in it uh, and would connect via Bluetooth to your phone. So the puck would do all the data collection and then your phone would just process it. And that got you much higher resolution data than you could get with your phone. Right. And much more reliable data because like with an accelerometer on your ski, you know, oh, okay, this person just did a backside 360 or something oh, off that jump. Yeah. You can't tell that when the phone's in your pocket because your phone's bouncing around like crazy. Right. So they were selling this device for 200 bucks. Their Kickstarter campaign did really well. And they also marketed it for surfboards, which makes a lot of sense. Um, so you go out surfing and then you could come back and sync it back to your phone later, but you wouldn't have to take your phone out in the ocean. So they did that good Kickstarter, but they didn't, uh, I don't think it really met expectations in terms of long-term sales for them. Um, but that got them some hardware expertise in doing this kind of accelerometer GPS data type stuff. Um, so then they pivoted that um, over to like this little thing that you could attach to your soccer boot that would track your movements and like how you would kick and all this kind of stuff while you're playing soccer. And then they took that and they also built on top of that uh, this like camera system and i'm not an expert of their product so i might be botching a little sure, bit of this. Sure. but from what i've been able to gather from their website like you can buy this camera system from them and set it up in the stands and then it can automatically just based on the gps and everything record everybody who's going identify who is where and automatically create like highlights of a certain player's movements during that time. Like you can look at all the data or it can automatically figure out like, Oh, here's where they were doing some kicks or something like that. Um, and coaches can use it and you can use it for like a higher light reel and all that kind of stuff. And they're licensing this to teams uh, as a way for like coaches to improve uh, what they're doing, uh, their right. training and like showing all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Cause like take like recording tapes and reviewing those and all that is like a big thing with sports. Right. And like, we've seen iPhone apps that do this, but now it's automatic. They just have the camera in the stands and it's tracking all of the players and able to pull that stuff out automatically. And that saves a lot of burden on the coaches. Um, so they're all in over there in that soccer area now. And they seem to be doing a bang up job. Like they've figured out, I think, uh, what works in that space. Uh, and they're like scaling up employees. Like they seem to be getting a lot of traction that they never got in the ski and snowboard space. So kudos to them um yeah no that's fascinating yeah it's i i was uh, first time i saw him do soccer i'm like what uh, <laughs> but looking at him now they're they're kicking butt so it's really cool to see but yeah they were the other competitor i had um so segueing that tangent back to the original um it so what i i guess i was a little bit cocky and, you know, I was thinking like, oh, okay, well, you know, my differentiator will be, I'll have a better design, you know, very Apple, very, yeah. you know, full of myself. I'm going to do this great design. It's going to be so intuitive, all that kind of stuff. And looking back, boy, was it bad. Um, <laughs> but apparently it was enough uh, to get some people interested. And I think one of the big 
different approaches uh, that didn't necessarily, it wasn't the UI design, I think, that was shining. I think I did some good UX to group some data together better. Um, But one of the things I think that was really cool was just how you could interact with your day and the idea of having uh, the map linked with the kind of data that you're trying to play back. So you could scroll through your day of runs and the map would update to show like what run you're looking at. But then on top of that, um, you could switch to a 3D mode. And I think that was the biggest uh, differentiator for slopes back then was the idea of, you know, skiers and snowboarders, we think in 3D. Right. You know, we have vertical. That's a very, that's just as important to us as where we go is like, well, what was that run like? Was it steep? Was it not steep? And so being able to 3D render a run, and back then this was pretty simple 3d rendering um i mean we're talking iphone so i was gonna say was that that was there like towards the beginning of slopes yeah that was in version one. Oh wow okay um, for some reason i thought that was something you added later no i did a big upgrade to it later um the one that shipped uh originally with slopes was i taught myself OpenGL, and all it basically was was a th- simple 3d graph basically on a white or on a black background uh with you know little checkerboard pattern floor so you had some depth perception um and it would just do your speed as a color for like the tube of your track and you know the faster you went it would change more to green uh slow would be red and then uh you could it would move like your little icon down there uh as it played back and so it wasn't like google earth or anything crazy like it was just a simple 3d rendering of the path that you took so you could see the horizontal and the vertical at the same time um i i can tell you from experience uh even though i have not used slopes because i i haven't gone skiing in i don't know way too long uh i have a friend at work who skis all the time and he recently found your app uh probably from my recommendation i'm not sure thanks and now every single time he comes back the way he tells the story of all the things that happened is literally through the lens of your app oh that's awesome because it's so visual like he'll be, be in the middle of telling a story and he'll like pull it up as a way to sort of augment like yeah we were trying to get across this ridge and you know we almost fell but like look at that you know and there's something extremely like it's not data you're looking at it's a story and i think that's why that 3d view and now you have like the ar view and stuff uh it really like resonates with the sort of after skiing viewing story yeah that's that actually is really touching to hear because that's exactly my goal with slopes is i always view it um part of that startup weekend's uh spiel that i gave was trying to say like i wanted an app that was more of a journal for your skiing and snowboarding experiences and less just like a bunch of data on the screen. And the visual is something I've really tried to hone in on, you know, what makes the most sense for skiers and snowboarders as we're trying to look back on our day. And how can I augment that with things like photos or your friends or stuff like that and really get you like a holistic picture of what the story of your day was versus focusing on sort of the raw data training which you could imagine going a very different route yeah uh even with the exact same data and like surfacing in a different way yours seems to be more focused on like you said like the journaling it's about telling a story yeah like uh, that 99 cent app you know like they'll have a bunch of graphs uh, like a 2d you know, vertical graph that just shows like your speed versus your altitude and stuff like that. And like for an engineer that's trying to look into the data, that's the perfect kind of graph because that's just raw data. You can look at it, figure it out, but that doesn't tell a story. 
And that was the problem I was having with that other app that I felt I could do a better job than was that I could link all that same data together in a way that you could look back at it and it would bring back memories. It wasn't just about analysis. It was about being able to look back in the middle of summer and being like, oh yeah, that time I went to Canada and had a lot of fun there. And you can go back really quick and look at what that trip actually was and not just like, oh, okay, we're here with your top speed or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, that's awesome. And I don't know. It, it's cool because, you know, I've been listening to you talk about that app through your, your podcast independence for a while. And then seeing somebody basically do all of the exact things that you've talked about as your sort of pitch. Uh, it's, I don't know. It's really cool to actually see it in person. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, that's still something I think I've only seen it in the wild a couple times. Um, but at least I always hear from people like, oh, my friend uses it. And and like, it's always warming to hear like when people actually are using it the way that you hope that you designed it for people to appreciate. Because there's always a difference between like what you have in your mind and what you think you're actually coding and designing and doing everything. Uh, but the proof is really when you hear back and, you know, you hear these stories being built around your app and how it's being used. And when those line up with what your original goals were, like, that's one of the best feelings. It's really great. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, less less warm and fuzzy and uh, down to brass tacks then. Let's talk about business models because that's that's another area that Slopes has been a fascinating case study for me to, to see because you've gone through many of them and you talk openly about it. So, uh, so starting out, what was the business model for slopes? So I distinctly remember, um, back at startup weekend, uh, I was talking to, you know, a bunch of the mentors that were going around the room at the time, stuff like that. Um, and Lauren Britter was actually there and he was one of the mentors and like, I was talking to him, big respect for him. Yeah. Um, he was doing all that cool stuff back in the day. And like, this was still that time. Like Tweety was still uh, a thing. Yes. Rest okay. in peace. Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, I think by then Tweety had been sold. I think. Yeah. 2013, I think it had been sold by, um, but still he was just coming off of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I remember talking to him and he's like, Oh, you know, what do you think for pricing and stuff like that? And this is when freemium was getting really popular, like 99 cent rate to race to the bottom. This was that time. And I was all like proud of myself. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm not going to race to the bottom or anything. I'm going to, I'm going to charge real money for this app. I'm going to charge <laughs> 499. And looking back, I'm just like, oh, that's so quaint. Um, but I remember he looked at me and he's like, oh, double that price. Double it. Um, and I should have listened to him earlier. Uh, I was always afraid of trying to charge too much. And I stuck at $4.99 for quite some time. Uh, it wasn't until maybe the second year of Slopes, I started to experiment with the paid upfront price a little bit. I was always worried like people would notice if I changed the price or something and nobody notices. Yeah. People <laughs> care a lot about a lot of less about you than uh, you think you, that they do. Yeah. Nobody's going to remember. No friend is going to be like, what? I bought that app for $4.99. You're getting ripped off for $7.99. No, nobody notices. <laughs> um, but I did eventually raise the price to $7.99 and that worked pretty well uh, in terms of like keeping the revenue a little bit higher than I was getting, but not losing a bunch of users or downloads. Um but around that time, this, this is like early 2015, uh, the second year of second winter of slopes having been completed. Um, you know, I'd been working on it kind of nights and weekends, taking a month off here and there, maybe from consulting to work on it. And 
I was kind of getting the itch to work on it more and more, but the downloads weren't there. And honestly, I was getting tired of arguing with users like, no, 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 look, trust me, just pay $8. You'll love the app. Look, here's why it's different. Like it's, you can't make a sale like that. It just, it wasn't working. Um, so I decided, you know, I need to sit down and rethink this and figure out, you know, paid up front is not working. Uh, I refuse to go 99 cent paid up front and just try and make it up in volume because that I knew was not sustainable, especially because I was starting to get server costs and everything from ongoing. Uh, like if in some of the other stuff I wanted to add would definitely add to that on a per user basis. So I'm like, I have to make up the money somehow. So I, I recently I've been uh, starting to call myself a subscription hipster because I was doing them <laughs> before they were cool. Um, so Slopes went subscription in 2015, um, which at the time was still when um, Apple was not letting users or letting developers use auto renew subscriptions for anything but dating apps or content apps or whatever the other two categories were. Um, so I did non-auto renew yearly price. But I was looking around at like people like, you know, Strava or Runkeeper or stuff like that. And like, they were doing a yearly price. And that was kind of my inspiration for like, look, there are these other fitness apps out there that are doing some kind of yearly price. Uh, why don't I try that? Like, that seems sustainable. That seems like if I get enough people, I'll be able to just, you know, keep building this up. And my goal is to keep people around and happy, which has always been my goal. So it aligned really well with my incentives, I thought. Um, so I figured I'd try it out and I just kind of settled on $20 a year. Cause like the running apps were anywhere from 40 to $50 a year, but you can't use slopes as much as a running app. So I felt like eh, 20 bucks felt about right. So that finally launched in uh, 2015. And that was the first, I think, big business model change for slopes, um, going subscription. And then quickly after that, once Apple released or, uh, approved blessed, the ability to use auto renewing subscriptions. I think it was like eight months after that, six months after that, uh, I switched right away over to those, uh, which was nice. But yeah, I was doing them back before like the the official like floodgates opened on subscriptions, I think. Um, so how did you manage that transition? Because I think we've all seen, uh, you know, <laughs> bad transitions go down in lots of different yeah. ways. Uh, and they always result in people being very angry, both existing users, because uh, that's a whole story that you have to figure out. And then, you know, people going forward, hating them. Uh, so what was your approach to that? So fortunately, back then, um, Slopes had only been downloaded, uh, I think it was like 1800 times in two years. Um, like I had not made that much money with Slopes yet. I didn't get a ton of downloads. Um, it was definitely slow going. So in terms of the number of people I had versus the size of my market, uh, it was a sliver, which was great because that meant I didn't have to worry about, like, I could take care of these older users. I could bend over backwards for them because at the end of the day, they weren't going to be a huge drain on my resources because they were just a sliver of my market. Right. It wasn't like I had, you know, 50% of my market already acquired, and now I have to figure out how to live with that. Um, so I took good care of them. You know, I grandfathered everything in Slopes. So Slopes 2 is what launched the subscriptions. And I grandfathered everything that they had in Slopes 1. Uh, they would get unlocked in Slopes 2. And there was like a receipt bug I had in the first point release. Um, <laughs> it, uh, but most of them were pretty forgiving. 
And that didn't really blow up in my face aside from the bug. Um, most of them, I still have some of those people write in today and be like, hey, I've been using Slope since 2014 or something. It's like, hey, thanks for sticking with me. Yeah, that's um, awesome. Yeah, it's really cool to see like they're still happy and that some of them are still free users and that's fine. Um, but so, yeah, I, I made it a priority to really grandfather them and try and do right by them um, and not just be like, oh, you get a month free trial or something like you paid me for features. Um, I'm at a luxury right now since I have a small market share uh, that I can just give you those features and I don't have to rely on milking you for money the same way uh, that I might in another situation. So I did that and um, I tried to communicate early. Yeah, that was what I was going to ask. Yeah, um, that was something that I tried my best to do. Uh, It was hard because I didn't have a huge email list back then or stuff like that. But I still tried to get the word out because I think looking at some of the transitions that have happened, um, even this year with some apps that have gone over to subscription models, uh, one of the faults I saw was not communicating early enough and trying to make the big launch of the subscription version of the app, like a big splash, like you would another point release, you know, back in the paid upgrade days where it's this big surprise and you're building towards it and then boom. Um, Because if you rely on that, you're going to have a lot of people with misinformation. You know, they're going to open the app. They're not really going to know what's going on because they're probably interacting it for the first time by opening it on their phone. Right. It's unlikely they read the, you know, uh, opus mac stories uh review that explains right. everything for you exactly um that's a, such a small sliver of the markets out there like most users don't do that stuff um so they're suddenly seeing these things and they're not sure if they have to pay for them or not but people are probably going to assume the worst um and once you assume the worst you have uh loss aversion will kick in you know people get Mm -hmm. more worked up if they feel like you're taking away something from them than if you just never gave it to them um so if they feel like you're removing features in any way uh that gets people worked up and then you'll have people spreading all that on twitter and i saw some of the people launching products this year like they're spending time on twitter triaging being like "No, no 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 you get that for free you were a version X user, version Y, you'll get that unlocked, you're grandfathered. Um, but that lack of communication until launch day, I feel like really kind of m- makes it hard for users to get the right information because they're it's all in the moment. Like you're having to fight those emotional reactions. You're not prepping them to say, hey, look, in a month, we're going subscription. You're an existing user. Here's how we're going to take care of you. And then launch day can be all focused on all those shiny new features that you're launching and all these like awesome new things and not necessarily triaging what you're going to do to grandfather people. Right. I think you really need to separate those. Um, otherwise you'll get into trouble. Yeah, I agree. Especially because you will inevitably, I think literally every one of these transitions I've seen has had some sort of receipt related bugs. Uh, yes. I don't know if that's something in Apple's system cause I haven't done that yet or what, but that seems to always happen. And so you throw that into the mix where people are telling the truth when they're complaining and saying, I lost XYZ feature. Yeah. And it's because, you know, some sort of day validation didn't happen right or whatever. And usually they get those fixed up within a day because you're stressing out because you're getting, you know, uh, destroyed on Twitter or whatever. But, but you, (laughs) that message is now out and seeped out. And a lot of people, that's the last time they're going to hear about you is that story whenever that became a big wave. And so, yeah, I, I don't really have much room to talk because I've not done it myself, but 
I've always had the same feelings what you're saying is that like very early communication specifically about the the business model change and like letting people know and air out all their grievances then takes a lot of the air out of that negativity for when you release and then the new information should be all the positive things the new features yada yada yeah exactly yeah and it's not just communication on that too I think is, I think that's one of the keys, but then I think the second key that a lot of people don't always sit down and think about is, you know, what, how are you changing the product for those grandfathered users? Um, so a really, I think, uh, specific example would be how much are they going to be reminded that they're no longer the premium user and that you're trying to upsell to them throughout the app Yeah, because they bought the app in a certain state. They bought the app and they bought it without advertisements for your premium offering, whatever it is. And now they don't have the choice for if they're going to download a new version of your app, for example, that has these premium advertisements. You are now forcing that on them. You've taken the control out of their hands. And anytime you take control out of somebody's hands, that will really anger them. People do not like feeling forced into anything. So you really have to sit down and consider the psychology of the user and look at, okay, what did they have before and how will that change today? What am I going to be putting in their way? You know, what am I reminding them of all the time that has changed? And you kind of, you kind of have to really think that through, I think. And you have to just think more about how users will emotionally respond from a base level, like loss aversion. You really have to think that through. And it's easy as a product owner to look at it and be like, oh, you know, whatever. It's just a small badge here on this screen and that screen and like whatever. Um, but I, I think we underestimate emotional responses of users a lot. And that's something you have to have empathy for. Um, because at the end of the day, if you don't have that empathy for how they might receive something, uh, that's going to affect your business. And that's not good. <laughs> yeah. Like that feeling of hitting a paywall, especially if there's a big shiny badge that's telling you, you have to hit this button uh, and then you hit it and then it gives you a paywall. That is a negative feeling that you're going to get pretty much 100% of the time, I think. Uh, you might then rationalize it, internalize it, decide to buy it, decide not to, whatever. But that feeling is going to be negative. And you're sort of evoking that in all your users. And that wasn't an experience they had the day before that update came out. Uh, if, if you know, it was a paid up front app before that. And so... Right. And that's not something that they had... Uh, kind of mentally reconciled when they paid that $9 or whatever they paid up front for your app. Uh, they hadn't had to sit down and choose like, oh, well, this thing has ads. It's still worth $9 to me. Like they had bought it because it didn't have ads. Right. And now it will. It's especially true for apps that are part of their main selling point is like a really clean design. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think too, there's this thing where, you know, if you bought an app, uh, that was paid up front. You were the target audience for that probably. Right. And then whenever something switches over, like, especially if, you know, that paid up front model fell apart, you stopped updating the app because it didn't make financial sense. It was costing you more money than, you know, you were making or whatever. And then you decide, you know what, I'm going to resurrect this app. Uh, it's going to be better for everybody because at least there'll be updates going forward. I'm not going to take any features away, whatever, but I'm going to add all these new features and it's behind a paywall. Um, that's now subscription-based. 
But for all those users, they went from when they bought the app and maybe they're still regular users. They were the target audience to suddenly you're switching your focus to a new like audience that's willing to pay more for more professional features or whatever it be. But like, that's also a kind of a negative feeling is to like have the focus of the designers and developers of the app be on you and then shift it away from you. I feel like we're almost talking about what's happened with Apple with the past 10 years. I feel like yeah, a, a lot of people, especially if you look at like the Mac Pro blowback, um, the older Mac Pro, or even the new one to some degree, um, you know, for a long time, people who were developers really felt like Apple was targeting them before the iPhone. You know, they, you know, I had a G5 uh, Mac because I, I needed that power. I was doing some serious programming and that's what I needed. And like, it really felt like Apple was targeting me with that machine. And I think ever since the iPhone has come out and they're working on the watch and like their market has opened up a lot wider. And I think some of the negativity we see regarding Apple and what they're coming out with is not necessarily that they're coming out with bad products. It's that people feel left behind, like they're no longer that target market. And you're really hitting the nail on the head there with that. It's like that that really triggers something in people that they can take a company that they absolutely loved or take a product or an app that they loved. And if you feel left behind, you're going to hate it. It maybe not right away, but slowly over time, as things keep moving, like it can be a wonderful, amazing product still, but you're going to start hating it more and more because it's not your product anymore. It's not made for you. It's made for them, somebody else. And that, that hits hard, I think. Yeah. Like if you have a intensely focused company that doesn't do everything, but they're focused on you and doting on you constantly with new, wonderful, magical toys, that's amazing. But the moment it slightly shifts away from you, you can feel it moving away and like, there's nothing you can do to get it back. It's not like there's another company doing the same thing. And so, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I guess that applies in the inverse, uh, going from paid up front to subscription because often not always, but often you're switching your focus from a more mass market. You're going for scale, right. To, Mm -hmm. I don't need as many people, but I can monetize those people more and I can give them better features and spend more time on this, but you're shifting your focus from mass market to, Uh, a more focused, you know, business oriented market. And it's like the inverse of what you're talking about with Apple. And in either one of those cases, yeah, how do you communicate and keep the other people happy while sort of shifting your, your eye to somebody else? And maybe you just can't. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's sometimes you can't. And that's okay. I think, you know, you're always going to have criticisms when you switch business models. Um, You're always going to have people that don't like the change. Uh, And you're always going to be alienating some users, like they are no longer the target in some way. And I think to some degree, as long as you're confident in the direction you're going, you just kind of have to stay the course and just accept the fact that, yes, I will piss off some of my existing users. But at the end of the day, this is the better direction for that company, uh, for my product. Yeah. And I think that's the trap that a lot of us, me highly included, fall into is being afraid of that that vocal angry base even if you've even if you sat down and you've really thought through everything and you think long term this is the best way to go that fear of that hit of negativity that you know you're going to get uh might freeze you from making the better decision for everybody uh and that's that's not really a good place to be either 
Oh no. Yeah. It's, it's a terrible place to be as a product owner. You don't, if you're anything like me, you know, your product is somewhat tied to your self-identity or even your self-worth. And it can be really hard to receive that negative criticism. Uh, see many episodes of independence in which I go on and on about the emotional turmoil I'm in, uh, dealing with customer support and all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it can be hard to just accept the fact that you're going to get that negative criticism and you just kind of have to live with it. Um, but you do have to look at it kind of objectively and figure out, is there too much criticism here? Did I miss the mark or is just, or is this just the criticism that should be expected with this kind of transition? Right. Yeah. Cause it's really a broader story. It's somebody who doesn't like a business model generally, and they're right. taking it out on you cause you're the latest example, but like, right. There's nothing you could have done that would have made them happy. Yeah. 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 It doesn't help either that I get a lot of email that's like, man, I really appreciate you having just a paid up front app with no subscriptions. I hate subscriptions. You're amazing for doing this exact thing. And it like, it's not stated, but it's, it's implied, or at least I'm reading into it that it's like, if you ever switch, I will turn against you. And like (laughs) every one of those (laughs) actually gives me this pain. I will burn your world down. (laughs) Yeah, that's like, it literally is like, it's both very kind and also like, has this tinge of like, I'm afraid of you now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's those people are very, very vocal. Um, Fortunately, I don't know, I feel like I don't get a lot of them. Um, I don't know what the secret sauce there is. I mean, I do get some app reviews being like, oh, I love it if it would be paid up front um, or a one time payment thing. But it's like, Five stars, great features, wish I only had to pay once. Like, I don't know how I'm not getting absolutely raked over the coals for being subscriptions. I do think maybe, maybe being clearly kind of more of an independent app and not of a big company kind of helps. Um, I I know that helps me in some ways. I'm not 100% sure if that helps me get people less pissed off at me in this way. Um, But somehow Slopes is largely avoided... um, angry criticism about that you know i'll have some complaints but certainly no one angry that i'm subscription or something like that i probably they just delete the app and say screw it um but (laughs) what can you do yeah i think probably it's the transition where you get most of that sort of vitriol and uh if it wasn't a giant user base before you made that transition and you handled that transition well um you're probably okay then after that See, this is why it's good to be a subscription hipster. You did it before there are a lot of users. (laughs) Um, Okay, so before I let you go, I do want to ask about Android because uh, I know that's a thing you're sort of working through right now and maybe there's a little, uh, not drama, but it's a a struggle and it's a thing that I think a lot of iOS developers just never even try to dip their toes into. Um, But you are, or at least you were, last I checked. So how is that going? Still am. (laughs) Oh boy. Um, It's, I don't know, some turmoil. Um, It's just hard to find, uh, you know, well, any industry, it can be hard to find reliable, good contractors. Um, I don't want to go with an agency. I'd rather have some kind of long-term partnership with a contractor or maybe someone I eventually bring on board. Um, But agencies can cost a lot more money because they have to worry about keeping everyone on their bench paid and like uh, all the stuff that causes overhead there. Um, So I'm trying to find an independent contractor and that's challenging in any industry. And I feel like, and this might be a very unfair thing to say, but I feel like Android it's especially more challenging because my theory is uh, a bunch of companies just try to check that box. 
you know, they just need the Android app. Not to say there are no good Android apps. There certainly are. But so many companies are just built around, look, we need to finally ship an Android app. Let's get it out the door. That the people that contract for Android don't have the same level of polish and attention to detail and everything that you get with a lot of Apple apps on our platform. And we have plenty of apps. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. There are plenty of terrible apps out there. But but the market maybe shapes uh, shapes contractors more towards like efficiency and yes. uh, speed slash cost versus yes. high polish. Um, exactly. For whatever reason that is. How the store is designed, the way that Google has, you know, monetize or set up the, the Play Store, whatever the reason is, which I definitely am too ignorant to make a good call on. Maybe that's like part of that is the market sort of shapes that. Yeah. And I think there's also a smaller market for Android apps because of the monetization problems, because, you know, there are a lot of downloads for Android apps, but there are people are a lot less willing to pay on Android because, you know, they get the free phone or whatever the reason is, you know, a lot less people pay for in-app purchases or whatever on Android. So you also then have a smaller potential pool of contractors to support that because the market isn't huge. And when people are willing to pay for those, uh, to pay to have that app written, they probably invest less money because they don't expect a large return. Like I'm expecting iOS is going to be paying for my Android contractor for quite some time. I'm not going to make that money up on Android. I'm not going to break even anytime soon. This is a sunk cost and I'm okay with that. But that means that a lot of the people that I'm looking at right now, like a bunch of people that emailed me are part-time contractors. They have a full-time gig and they'll do Android on the side to earn some extra money or something. It's not nearly the flood of people I feel like I find in the iOS world where they're full-time contractors, you know, doing a bunch of gigs or something like that. Like it, it seems a lot more side projecty and I've gotten some full-time people. um, And the guy I was previously working with was full-time on it, but it's, it's, I think, just been harder for me to find someone uh, that's good to work with. And yeah, so that's that's kind of been the drama as of late is just having to say goodbye to one contractor. Um, and the, no big drama there. Uh, just, you know, we had to part ways. Some life issues came up on his end and just couldn't support the contract anymore. Um, so trying to find someone new and, you know, it kind of knocks the wind out of your sail having it be like, okay, here's this thing I'm working on. And I made the decision to work on it last August and like started paying money, real money towards this. And now i kind of feel like I'm back to square one. Like I have a code base, but you know, I have to find somebody again. I have to go through all that. Um, so yeah, long story there, but it's, it's going, uh, I am still actively working on the Android project. Uh, it's just kind of the wind got knocked out of my sails and, and trying to find someone else this week and, keep moving forward. So how, how are you approaching that app then? Is the idea like, do you want it to be a consistent experience across both? Or are you kind of thinking, take the like sort of ideals and principles of slopes and translate that into what a proper native Android app would be, which might look different, maybe even radically than what you currently have. Yeah, very much the second. Um, I mean, I think what has made slopes or at least what I hear really makes slopes great for users is that 
you know, some people will say it's like the ski app that Apple never made. Like I really try and be a good platform app. I try and fit in on the system and I want to do the same thing over on Android. You know, I feel like all too often over there, they are used to being second class citizens. You know, they get the apps, they get the checked box. Oh, look, here's your Android app. And I don't want to do that. I want to feel like a proper Google app as much as I can. So I feel like I'll pull a lot of similarities for like how I think about data and how I visualize it. And maybe the map screen will be very much the same, but it's going to be like using their material theming and it's not going to feel like, uh, it's just, uh, you know, a react native port over and it's the same looking UI on both platforms that don't feel at home really on either platform. Like it's very much going to be an Android app. Um, so how are you doing that? Are you, like, are you leading the the design there or are you planning on sort of, I mean, obviously you would lean on your contractor, but like, would that also come into play on the design side or are you kind of buying a bunch of Android phones and living the Android lifestyle a little bit to kind of understand that? Uh, no. So yeah, I have a uh, pixel three a that I bought uh, back in last winter and I've been, I wouldn't say living on it. I'm not a savage, um, but <laughs> I, I am definitely using it and perusing apps and I've gotten some recommendations and actually found some really good apps over there. Uh, Wikipedia, by the way, has an amazing Android app. They do a really good job. Really? Yeah. Um, there are definitely a couple other ones. So I've been actually, I, that is a thing that I I've been looking for. Like, to me, there's Pocket Cast. That's sort of like the perennial They're amazing Android yeah. app, which is also on iOS. But kind of the example, right. the one that my friends are like, oh, yeah, we pay for apps. I pay for Pocket Cast. Uh, but right. I don't I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's what we were talking about earlier, like the actual market just doesn't exist the same way or if it's because I don't run in the same circles. But I don't know who the sort of stars of the Android indie app development scene are or who those what those apps are. Um because I've selfishly kind of looked for the show because I don't want this to just be an iOS show. And I, I've kind of struggled sure. to find uh, who those darlings are. Yeah, I don't know how much the indie lifestyle is over there. Uh, again, I feel like it's harder to, to earn a living over there because less people are willing to pay. You have all that. Even Pocket Cast, you know, they were, what, a three-person team when they launched their Android app? Somewhere around there, I think. Um, and now they're, you know, company right. working for, what, NPR or whatever. Um, or whatever that conglomeration of things is that bought Pocket Cast. And it, I feel like I do see a lot less independent people over there. And even when I was reaching out to some people I know at Google on the material team on Twitter, just being like, Hey, what are your favorite material, you know, apps, uh, that I got one person reply with like three or four maybe. And I expected like, if you're on iOS, you can surf through the app store and find a bunch of well-designed apps. Yeah. And if you ask anybody, they'll go through like their favorites and pitch you on it basically because you sort of have this relationship and you'll get a ton of different favorites from everybody yeah yeah so i feel like android um has that less and some of that might be a little bit biased because i don't have a bunch of android friends um but one of my best friends is an android user and like what he recommended as like oh here's a great android app uh it's very much engineer built like launchers Uh, like nova launcher or apex something like that yeah (laughs) um so it's yeah, it's it's been hard to find good apps over there. Uh, again, not to say there aren't any, um, but it has been a bit harder. Like I feel like, or some of the other ones, National Geographic, I think is pretty good. Starbucks actually is an okay one. Wikipedia, a couple more. But yeah, they're just, I feel like Google struggles to get people to adopt their stuff 
uh, like material design and stuff like that. Um, I mean, that's a whole Google conversation, but it's, it's not like iOS where when they came out with, you know, the idea of the card UI a couple iOSs ago, you know, everybody is suddenly using that or iOS seven with the visual effect view. You know, we had, what was it? FX blur view back then, you know, a third party implementation of it because we didn't have official system support yet. And like all the apps were using that third party plugin on day one, you know, a lot of people try and fit in with the system and adapt to it. But I feel like, um, Google apps kind of just get stuck in whatever generation of Android they wrote. So if you look back, you like, I can look at the Strava app and be like, Oh, okay. They were written during this Android because they're using these ideas and they never updated from that. And I feel like that's just kind of what happens. Things get launched and kind of get stagnant over there. So it's harder to find these up-to-date examples of, Oh, here are some great apps. Uh, you know, here's my 30 best apps. You know, I probably have four or five on my pixel that I'm like, okay, these are really good. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's weird, too, because like Google, like you said, when they launched their material design spec, uh, it was pretty well received and and well like used. Like you see it everywhere. It's almost like the new. uh, Oh, shoot. What is it called? The bootstrap. It's almost like the new bootstrap, right? Like if you're going to make like a basic little React web app for some system that you're going to use internally, you don't plan to release it. You're just going to throw a material design on there because it's easy. It looks generally nice and, and it's a consistent thing that people understand. And I do feel that on Android, like when I, cause I was an Android user uh, for a pretty long time, even up until that came out. And that was a selling feature the same way that we say, you know, iOS uh, 13, well-designed, like follows Apple patterns, whatever people would say, this is a material designed app. And that was a like selling point. So it's not that design isn't cared about or focused over there, but yeah, it does seem like there's, I don't know, there's something, maybe it could literally be the difference between the stores. Like the editorial team at Apple might be really good at surfacing, you know, those types of apps. And then when those are successful business-wise, they stay around and they stay updated and then that inspires other people to do the same thing. And it kind of creates a culture of design. And maybe that part doesn't exist over there. I guess there's a million vectors and it's impossible to really know. When you also have people who, you know, you have material theming come out and I forget how far back you can backport it to, but you have people that are running five-year-old phones, four-year-old phones that can't yeah, get the latest operating system. So anything that Google comes out with, you know, we joke in the iOS community and iOS 14 is going to be announced in what, 28 days or something like that. And we're like, oh, good. We can finally use iOS 13 features. Like, yay, it's time to start using that stuff because we can drop support for iOS 12. Um, Android has a much longer horizon there. So unless you have something like a polyfill library that'll let you backport all that functionality to older systems, it is a lot harder to jump on whatever the latest and greatest initiative is because you have to support all those older phones. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, I'm sure it's a multitude of reasons, but yeah, I mean, there, there are good ones out there and that's my hope is that slopes will be a good Android app. That's really my goal for it is, you know, I want it to be like when pocket cast came out and the Android community was like, Oh, this is an amazing app. Like this feels just as good as an iOS app and rewarded it. Yeah, they did. Um, and now I think Pocket Cast was a bit of a good target market for Android right. users. Um, that's a whole other thing. But um, they did definitely come out with a good design. And I think that plus the market ended up rewarding them pretty nicely. Um, so I, I'd hope to be that on, whenever I launch. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, well, interestingly, uh, my friend who's the one who uses your app all the time, uh, he was an Android user. And whenever he switched over to the iPhone was when he got your app because he had already known about it. But he was a person, and I know he knows people that want it for Android, specifically because uh, they go in big groups of people and they like sharing all Mm -hmm. that data and being able to... Like, it's a selling point even for iOS people uh, that their friends can get the app. Even if you're not making all the money on the Android side, it's still a feature for iPhone people um, just because of that social aspect of it, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly why I finally committed to doing an Android app was I realized that the iOS experience was starting to become hindered because I didn't have an Android counterpart. Because, I mean, let's be honest, you know, you, me, our Twitter friends, like, we probably all run iOS. We're in that community. But if you look at families or you look at a group of friends, almost no group is going to have a single operating right. system. It's going to be a mix. And when I launched some of the social features last year, where like when you're looking back on your day, uh, if you have a friend and you've agreed to location share within slopes, uh, you can see your friend's route moving around the map at the same resort that you were at with them. So like if they went off and did a couple runs somewhere else, you'll see their avatar moving around the map over there while you're over on your stuff. And like that kind of stuff you can't do without an Android app because half their friends don't show up on the map anymore. So that's really what kind of put the the fire under my butt to get an Android version out there was like that data is so much cooler. Like my story is told so much better about my day when I can see everybody that I rode with as part of my data, but I need their data in the system for that to work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I'm really excited to see how this goes. It's fun watching you go through that. Um, <laughs> which I guess makes it sound like a, a trial or something on your end, but it's, it's definitely <laughs> fascinating to watch. Um, and if anybody's listening and you know, they're an Android user and they're screaming at us cause we didn't bring up X app, please uh, tell me cause I know I'd be interested. And Curtis sounds like is also would be interested, uh, looking for those sort of darling apps of, uh, of the Android world. Yeah. Please send any recommendations my way. Um, Fortunately, Google's being kind of good with some outreach of helping some partners do material themed apps and stuff like that. And I've managed to get in on that. So like I do have advice uh, from their UI experts for what to do. So that's good. Um, Yeah. So that that at least helped me get the material aspect done right. Um, But there's certainly like slopes. A lot of the good stuff is not just because I follow UI kit and however Apple does it. Um, so it's still, I need other apps to look at to be like, okay, well, what fits in? Because I'm going to have to break from material to do some things. So, you know, what still makes sense in terms of a UI? Yeah, and what are the weird little OS features that you probably aren't, well, maybe you are now, but I'm not even aware of that uh, most apps skip, but make your app special. The kinds of things that indie, you know, iOS app developers are known for, like getting right. all those little integrations in, um, or like you with your animations in the app for all your different noises that you can make, like all those little, the icons that animate, like those little things that show polish on the iOS side, you know, what are the equivalents on Android? Yeah, that'll be, that'll be really fascinating to watch. So I'm, I'm rooting for you. I'm excited to see where that goes. Thanks. I, I hope it launches. I'm trying to get it out for winter of 2020, assuming we have a ski season. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We didn't get into that at all, uh, but I guess I'll just uh, let that go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's been fun. Yeah. Yeah. 
first global warming and then uh, an accelerated version of a global crisis to shut down everything. Yeah, it was already a rough season. Uh, Whistler, one of the major resorts in North America, reported their worst season uh, up until the end of January, their worst season in 30 years. Vale Resorts, which is a huge conglomerate of resorts, reported like attendance was down like 8% uh, for the first half of the season. Like it was just a sad season already. And then if you look at my revenue chart, you can see (laughs) about when the global shutdown happened. And it just drops a month early it was so fun. why was the why was the uh, revenue down was it because the seasons were shorter because they couldn't be open as long or just generally skiing is on the downslope slope? <laughs> <laughs> um no so um i mean in general this season it was a rougher winter worldwide like there are some resorts in europe that just could never open because they didn't get snow mm. like it was just bad worldwide so you had people not going out as much because people don't want to spend a bunch of money to go somewhere you know to colorado or something like that if the season isn't right. that good so people are less likely to go which is already a thing um but then on top of that around uh what like march i don't know 18th 19th um all the resorts start shutting down for the season because of the virus. You know, you have the cafeterias that are normally packed or you're on a lift together. You can't social distance on a lift. Like that's not a thing. (laughs) Um, So you had a bunch of resorts worldwide uh, just announced like around March 18th or something. Like they're just like, we're done. We're closed. Some of them started by saying like, Oh, for the next two weeks, but you knew what was happening. Um, and it's actually caused quite a kerbuffle, uh, for some people who had season passes and they're like, well, you promised us, you know, we would have access until July, uh, you know, whatever snow was still dwindling on the hill by that point. But, you know, we, we should have access to that and we gave you money and, uh, resorts are scrambling to figure out how to take care of people and, you know, do right by them as best they can. Um, but you know, virus, there's not much you can do. (laughs) They, They can't really predict this. Um, but yeah, so like the, at least for me, you know, looking at the number of people recording, not just revenue, like it just dropped mid-March. Like it was just gone. Like people didn't feel safe traveling after like March 12th or so um, and started canceling trips. You know, before then people are like, okay, well, I'll risk it. Um, but then just worldwide, all the resorts shut down pretty much. And it was just, uh, you can't run a ski app without ski resorts. So yeah, I guess that's where yearly subscriptions versus you know, like an in-app purchase pass, one-off passes, uh, at least helps even out that, uh, <laughs> that slope of revenue a little bit. Uh, no, <laughs> I mean, I got, there are definitely some renewals coming through. Um, but it's, uh, it's a drop in the bucket. It's probably an order of magnitude less than I expected my revenue to be for March and for April. Um, it just hit the hit the hit the floor, because um, I. So is that is that from people who sign up for the first time when they're going on a trip, or is that like short term uh, subscriptions that they're doing or something? Well, I think it's a mix. Um, so one of the other business models within Slopes is the pass system, the day pass and the trip pass, um, and that's really popular in Europe. So people who only go for one ski holiday a year or something like that, they're not going to buy a season pass. It's not worth 20 bucks a year to them. Uh, So they could buy a week pass for like nine bucks, for example. And so those are obviously gone because those are directly tied to if they are actively using the app or not. Uh, Subscriptions, I'm still getting some subscribers, but 
the number of people subscribing are definitely weighted more heavily in the beginning of the season versus the end of the season. Uh, because people see like, oh, well, look, I'm going to use it all season. I have no problem paying that money versus people buying it in March. They're like, well, it's the end of the right. season. It's like, it doesn't matter. It's good for a calendar year. They don't think like that. They think in terms of seasons. So they're just like, well, the season's almost over. I'll wait till next year to buy it. So I already had a lower number of people who are willing to subscribe in March and April. And then you take all those people away. So the only things that are coming through are renewals and renewals of people who aren't canceling because they're realizing they're being charged for something that the industry is closed for right now. Um, so yeah, it's, it's ouch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's rough. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed. Perfect time to be launching a massive Android uh, project. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. But we'll see. Yeah. Well, yeah. Fun times. Good luck. Uh, thanks. I guess I should, I should, uh, wrap this up because as always, I, this should just be like a segment is that I just say, uh, sorry for taking too much of your time. Although I think I actually warned you it'd be like an hour and a half because that's pretty much what it always actually takes. Um, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I always end with asking the same question, which is what's a person or people out there that have inspired you, uh, that you'd recommend other people check out? Uh, so I guess recently, um, Russ Shanahan, um, oh yeah, he is actually in the Philly area. Also, uh, he writes the independent iOS app, uh, happy scale. Um, he's very good to follow just for getting some introspective thoughts going. He always makes me think, um, he's doing a great job with his indie app. Uh, he's doing a good job with the business model. Like a lot of the things are, I think going pretty well from him from an app perspective. Uh, but then just also the things he makes me think about uh, is always very good. I always look forward to seeing his tweets in my timeline because they usually get me thinking. Um, so I, w- I would definitely follow him. He is an exceptionally kind person. And he is. He, he actually yes. reached out like way early uh, in Dark Noise development. Like, you know, before I was really in the community at all, uh, he was a person who I don't even know how he noticed me or maybe he just looks up like hashtag swift or the word swift or something uh but he reached out and encouraged me and has been like a sounding board through this whole process and so hard hard recommend uh, uh agree on that because yeah he's he's great he is a genuinely kind person um he's just very sweet it's he's always nice to talk to awesome well um thank you so much for coming on uh sure you probably haven't listened to the episode that released like a couple hours ago, but, uh, it, it was with, uh, Shahab Maboob, the guy who makes a billion apps. Oh, I saw, yeah, I saw the release. It's in my queue. I haven't listened yet. So he actually, uh, I forgot to warn him that I was going to ask that question at the end. And so he kind of off the cuff spit out like four different people. And it happened to be three people that I've had on the podcast before and you. And so when we're recording, I was like, Hey Curtis, get on the phone. Uh, you know, we got to finish the quadfecta or whatever you'd call it of Shahab's, uh, uh, inspirations. <laughs> and then bef- between that time is when, uh, this all ended up happening and I ended up getting you on. So, so you haven't heard that yet, but I already got you that on the phone. Perfect. <laughs> it's almost like you planned almost. this. Almost. Yeah. Almost. But you can rest yes. assured. I rarely have planned anything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sounds like me. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only way to live. No pants and just fly by the seat. Yes, of them. exactly. Yeah. And, uh, if anybody has never listened to the podcast independence, uh, that you and, uh, jelly, Daniel Fairley and Alice Zoe, uh, did that podcast was 
like an exceptionally uh, helpful thing for me as I was working towards my first app. Uh, I've brought it up a million times on Twitter, but it's almost like a novel for entering the indie lifestyle because you guys each episode just kind of talk on a on a topic for something that for me entering was something I knew I was going to face or deal with in the future. And so even though you guys have ended that show, uh, it's still out there. At least I think it's still out there. And I highly recommend people just start at the beginning and just listen through to it, uh, especially if you're trying to enter the sort of indie indie iOS scene, but really indie uh, like developer scene at all. It's extremely, extremely good for that. And please send all hate email about the fact that it is no longer <laughs> going to Jelly. Uh, it can all go his direction. I was willing to stay. They broke my heart and left. It's what happens when you have a kid and then a job. They, you know, time is a thing people don't have. This, <laughs> both don't, of those affect me. And that is exceptionally true. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's Jelly, the well, creator of GIF Wrapped, the GIF application that you can uh, save GIFs, right? Uh, sorry, he has uh, pointed out that it is, in fact, his app's name, and I'm no longer oh. allowed to butcher it. Um, so it is GIF-wrapped, and that pains me to say it that way. It is, in fact, GIF-wrapped, but uh, I did promise him I would stop saying it wrong, so it is GIF-wrapped. Oh, man. What a, what a good friend you are. I try. Actually, I, I owe him a, uh, a hard G GIF as well, because uh, I'm working on shirts, which are not ready yet, but people should definitely uh, look up by the time this episode comes out, because hopefully they'll be ready by then. Um, but shirts for this podcast. And he pointed out that like, I had totally messed up a little area that I did not notice. And he pointed out and luckily I hadn't sent it off to start getting them printed yet because it would have been this like permanent, uh, mistake emboldened on my, on my chest, uh, for however long shirts last. So, so I, I owe him a big thanks as well. <laughs> you need to order one shirt with that mistake and send it to him as a thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, definitely it's the collector's edition. Financially viable uh, shipping to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> a one-off shirt. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on. Uh, so where can people find you and uh, the stuff that you make? Uh, so you can no longer find me on that podcast, <laughs> uh, but you can find me uh, on Twitter as parrots. That's the plural of the bird. Um, and that's probably the best place you can find the app at getslopes.com uh, or slopes.app. I never use that, but it's there or search slopes in the app store. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. It's, it's the first result. Finally. Um, yeah. Those are probably the two best places to find me and uh, see what I'm up to. Awesome. Well, uh, good luck for next season. Hopefully fingers crossed and, uh, your Android endeavors. Great. Thanks a lot. And thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. The launch shirts I mentioned are, in fact, ready for purchase. You can go to launchedfm.com slash store to get yours today. And some of them have already started trickling through, and I've really enjoyed seeing those on Twitter. If you'd like to discuss the show, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Chucky C or tweet the show directly at launchedfm. And as always, I'd really appreciate a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast player of choice is. You can find show notes and more at launchedfm.com.